Hey friends, on Plain Spoken, I'm delighted to have a format where I can talk to people who are much more intelligent and in the know than I am. Um, and I've dealt with people who are in the academy, people who've been in the church, uh, lay and clergy today. I'm really glad to be joined by a layman named Lonnie Brooks. He's been serving in the United Methodist Church for a long time. He first came on my radar at the beginning of this year whenever he published an op-ed that I, I thought was very insightful, and I'm going to ask him about that. But he has a career going back in the denomination where he he's uh, on the general conference level, very knowledgeable about the legislation that has been passed, the conversations that have been taking place for some time. He's um, I've I've talked with centrists who who claim him as one of their own proudly. And so uh, everybody knows that I lean pretty far right. And so Lonnie, I, I asked him, I, I said, hey, no worries if you're, you're not excited to come on Plain Spoken. He said, no, I think, I think it'd be just fine. So he's been very gracious to set aside this time. He's in Anchorage, Alaska. It's early in the day for him, but um, he's, he's decided that he'll, he'll bear with me for a little bit as I ask him questions about the history of the United Methodist Church and his role in it and his prayers as they're coming up on general conference next year. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and bring you on screen. Lonnie, how are you doing this morning? I'm well, thank you very much, Jeffrey. It's really good to be here and uh, uh, be with you for this, uh, for this chat. Yeah, yeah. Usually, you know, I can never predict how many people are going to listen to different things that I do. Sometimes it's eight or 900. Sometimes it's three or 4,000. I have, I have no idea which of your friends are internet savvy and will like watching and listening to you. But I know that that I'm excited to hear from you this morning because uh, I've just gone down your Facebook uh, since reading your op-ed, and you regularly have insightful, nuanced takes on the United Methodist Church and decisions made in different corners. I'm wondering, um, I, I wasn't able to find a bio of you. I probably should have asked for one. But for my viewers, um, I, I'm just curious to know how far back your your time in the United Methodist Church goes, what it is you love about the United Methodist tradition, um, what what things factor into who you are that connect you to the United Methodist Church. I was born into a family that was uh, United Methodist, and uh, their roots went back into the United Methodist that uh, its predecessor uh, denomination, the Methodist Church, a long way. Um, in fact, the United the 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 Methodist Church uh, was born uh, only a year before I was in 1939. Of course, with the merger of the uh, three churches that had split apart in the lead up to the Civil War, uh, and uh, so I was born in 1940, uh, and. Uh, on September 5th, in fact, uh, and, um, uh, happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. I would have asked you for another day, but happy birthday. Thank you for spending time with me. It's, it's going to be a busy day, but, um, yeah, that's the way birthday should be. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, uh, in fact, my earliest memory that, that I have of anything was in, uh, uh, when my mother carried me into the, uh, nursery at First Methodist Church in Orlando, Florida, where uh, I was growing up, uh, and put me down on the floor, and I'm I'm crawling into the the room, uh, eager to play with the blocks and other stuff that they had in the person nursery, and, and so I cherish that memory and keep it alive by rehearsing it from time to time. Uh, but uh, from there, it just grew. I've, I've 
uh, grew into uh, being an active youth and uh, young adult in that church there in Orlando. Uh, and it followed me. In fact, that it was participating in that church that inspired me to uh, look for a, a way that I could serve the church going forward. And I settled on the idea of being a, a missionary. So when I graduated from high school, I went to uh, uh, Georgia Tech uh, to be an engineer uh, with the idea that I would go into mission service as an engineer. <clears throat> and uh, while while I was there uh, in college, I, I decided I probably should have a theological background for for that uh, that work as an, as an engineer in missions. So I I settled on Perkins as a school that would suit my taste, and uh, I went then to Perkins for a year. And while I was there at uh, Perkins, a gentleman from the staff of the what was then the Board of Missions, later to become the General Board of Global Ministries, came to campus to interview people uh, who were in school there that had expressed an interest in being uh, in missions. And after talking with me for about 45 minutes, he said that uh, the thing that the board would have in mind for me to do on the mission field would be to teach math and science in high school. And I thought, wow, that's really a good mission for somebody, but not for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I went through some soul searching about uh, what my goals might become with that one kind of being frustrated uh, by the official uh, church and um, decided I would leave seminary at the end of that year and after consulting with my faculty advisor there mm. and uh, uh, found my own mission then uh, going around the world looking for oil and gas uh, as a geophysicist and uh, did that for 32 years uh, continuing to be uh, very active in the churches where I would uh, uh, find myself uh, and my wife uh, with me. Uh, I had one experience that uh, kind of was eye-opening for me, I thought, uh, when we were in Santa Monica, uh, first a Methodist church there, uh, a real dynamic young pastor, Paul Woodenberg, uh, asked me at one point, if I would be open to becoming a member of the, uh, what was then, I guess, the administrative board. And I told him that, gee whiz, uh, I'd really like to do that, but I just am really super busy in, in the work I'm doing, and I'm not going to have time to do that. And he said, that's all right, no pressure. Uh, and uh, I've regretted that ever since. I gave Paul the wrong answer. I, <laughs> I should have said yes. And uh, uh, it was a lesson to me then, and I, I've uh, uh, mostly from there, beginning from there, said yes to opportunities <laughs> to serve in the church. And uh, uh, there have been a lot of them, and I've taken advantage of many and most of them. So you, Santa Monica is in California, right? Yes. So born in Florida, then you traveled all over for work, and then uh, one of the places you lived in for a time was Santa Monica, California. You're in you're in Alaska today, mm -hmm. 
yes. are there any other significant places where you've plugged into the United Methodist Church? You know, uh, I think I can answer that question best by uh, speaking of the one place uh, that I ended up where that I was not uh, in the United Methodist Church or the, its predecessors. Um uh, for a year and a half, we got sent to uh, Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, the Methodist Church long ago, I think it was back in 29, somewhere around back there, uh, the, the Methodist Church in Canada, which was a descendant not from the Methodist movement in America, but uh, directly from the Methodist movement in England, the mm -hmm. Mother Church. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it merged um, with the most of the Presbyterian churches in Canada, there were some Presbyterian churches that held out, didn't, didn't join, but uh, it became then the United Church of Canada. And so there wasn't a Methodist church in Calgary, and, and we were committed to becoming, uh, uh, remaining active in church. Uh -huh. So we joined the United Church of Canada there for that year and a half. And that's the only time in my life I haven't been Methodist. If I call, if I recall correctly, uh, there's a confession of faith from the United Church of Canada in the back of the United Methodist hymnal. Yes, there is. Okay, and I remember right. it's actually not too bad. I, I remember looking at it critically a few years ago and going, "That's that's decent." Which they've got a pretty good creed. You're you're right about that. Yeah, and of course, the United Church of Canada is a member of the World Methodist Council, so they're part of the family. That's but, good to uh, know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but everywhere we've lived, we've uh, been active in uh, in churches, and and we haven't haven't found a bad one yet. <laughs> we've uh, we've just loved every every church and the friends we made in every church. And every time we left, uh, it was hard to leave the friends behind. Of course, in, including at the United Church in Canada that we were members of Pleasant Heights mm -hmm. in Calgary. Uh, they've all been great. We so you... we worked in Saudi Arabia for a while. Uh, there was no Methodist church there, but we re remained members where we left from. We were only in, in Saudi Arabia for three months, but uh, there was an active faith community there, uh, very much behind the scenes, of course. Uh, uh, one can't be uh, an open practitioner of the Christian faith in Saudi Arabia, uh -huh. but uh, it's, it's tolerated uh, sort of under the radar uh, uh -huh. that we have faith communities in the Christian life, gathering in in homes and uh, small places. So you, you were a cradle-roll Methodist. You stuck with the Methodist church wherever you moved, wherever you went. You got a, a wonderful wingman with you. To say your wife's name? Adriana. Adriana. Is she Hispanic? Yes, she's, she was born in Mexico. We met in El Paso. Wonderful. And how long have you two been married? Wow, 66, uh, uh, over 60 years. Yeah, uh, getting close to, uh, to 60 and uh, uh, a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a blessing. So she's been with you the whole time. I guess it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. So do you two have any kids together or have you just been a, a, a duo? It's just a duo. Yeah, we don't have children and okay. grandchildren either. Has she had the energy for church politics that you have? Uh, actually, no. Uh, she much prefers to be uh, uh, supportive and uh, 
take an active role in the local church uh, where we where we land uh, and, and the, the moves that we've made. And, and mind you, when I say the moves that we've made, uh -huh. uh, when we came to uh, Anchorage in 1974, uh, we felt like we'd finally come home. And mm. uh, so we we've resisted uh, moves. And of course, now we're retired. So we live wherever we want to live. And Anchorage continues to be the place where that is. We, we want to live in Anchorage. Uh, uh, we uh, we moved 10 times in the first seven years we were married. Oh, my. And when we got to Anchorage, we said, that's it. We, we don't uh -huh. think we'll move again. Yeah. Two different times during that period of time we've been in Anchorage, uh, um, I was told that my paycheck would be in Houston. Um, and uh, uh, we decided that was fine. I'd just take an apartment there and be a commuter. Uh, and, from uh, Anchorage? Uh, from Anchorage to Houston. Yeah, that's quite a commute. But uh -huh. yeah. we, we did it. And Adriana was a school teacher most of uh, our lives together. Uh, she's retired now, too, of course. But um, during that period of time, the, the, over two different times, I was required to be in Houston for work. Oh. Um, we about a year and a half to two years each time. So it wasn't that long. But in any case, uh, I like to say that during that period of time, Adriana had the best of both worlds. Uh, uh, she would be in Anchorage all winter long teaching school. And then uh, during the summer, the three months, she'd join me in Houston. Mm -hmm. Some people might say that's a reverse of the ideal, but. <laughs> so, okay. So just trying to understand you and kind of what, what are, where you're coming from. I've, I've noticed there are three different motivations as to why people stay with the method. You know, you've stuck mm -hmm. with it from the very beginning. The, the three basic motivations I've seen in people is, a sincere desire for holiness and a belief that um, the Methodist Wesleyan tradition does that better than any other, um, a desire for social justice and making social stands and mobilizing, putting out pronouncements and resolutions that are on the right side of history and uh, calling the, the world to do better. And then it's just all I've ever known. And I, 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 was, I was born into this tradition and I'm I'm just going to stay with this tradition out of who I am in the world. It's my sense of identity. Do you have a sense for, I think it can be all three for some people. Usually it's just two or sometimes just one. What's, what's kept you on board with the Methodist cause all these 80 some years of your life? It would be almost certainly naive of me to say that number three wasn't a powerful factor, which is to say uh, genetic almost. Uh, oh, certainly yeah. early training uh, um, has, has made it uh, uh, almost impossible for me to think of actually moving to another faith tradition. Uh -huh. But but I've put a lot of uh, thought and intellect uh, into uh, reflection on uh, the, the church and its uh, polity and its theology. Uh -huh. And I am uh, really comfortable with... Uh, with the United Methodist Church and its uh, theology and its polity, uh, as a general rule, that doesn't mean that I agree with every stance that the United Methodist Church takes on every issue. Sure, I've I've never seen such a person. I don't think there is one, uh, because many of our our, uh, our stances are quite contradictory. I, I remember, in particular, just to illustrate what I mean by that, Please. at one general conference. 
we simultaneously adopted a resolution uh, calling for the United States government to reject uh, any intervention in the internal affairs of another nation. In particular, this was a reaction to the Reagan administration's uh, policy with the Contras in Nicaragua. Oh, sure. Uh, and at the same general conference, we adopted resolutions calling for active uh, United States intervention in South Africa and to pose apartheid. Uh, and uh, in the, what is it, the Middle East, uh, yeah, to uh, intervene in the affairs of Israel to protect in protection of the of the uh, uh, Arab Israelis. Yeah, yeah. And and so you can't logically support both those, but we did. So <laughs> so, so how no one person can uh, can logically support everything that the United Methodist Church does, uh, me included. Uh, but by and large, I do support the the church. Sure. And uh, early on in my uh, decision to be active in the connectional uh, part of the church, rather than just confining my activity to the local church, uh-huh. I, I decided that it was it was my responsibility to be active in trying to correct those things that I uh, uh, thought were in error, uh-huh. and so that's been part of my my mission. And I should say that. Uh, overall, I could characterize my mission that I've perceived for myself anyway, uh, to be the empowerment of the laity uh-huh. uh, in these processes. And and when you talk about power in an organizational sense, essentially you're talking about the ability to make decisions for the organization. So that's that's been what I've been working for is to find uh, more ways for lay people of the church mm-hmm. to be active in the decision-making processes of the church. Yeah, I've reviewed some of the legislation, not all of the legislation that that you've proposed for the next general conference, and I do note that concern for the the laity and empowerment uh, empowerment of the lay voice. So uh, we'll we'll come to that in a little bit. I think I wanted to talk through some of the legislation you're proposing, but. Um, you, you already cited one um, hi- historical um, marker that that dates you the the Iran Contra. Uh, no, that wasn't. No, is the 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 Nicaraguan uh, affairs, which of course um, Mark Tooley talks about that as being what got him on board with critiquing the United Methodist Church because supposedly it was sending money to the National or World Council of Churches that was then funneling it to guerrillas on the ground and in, in Nicaragua. I, I haven't seen that firsthand reporting, so I don't know how accurate that is. But um, of course, the United Methodist Church, deep down in its bones, was always politically active to some degree. Well, from, yeah, from the very beginning, it, it used to make, well, it's on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and it, it directly t- tries to impact uh, national, international policy. Um, but that, I think, the, the the historical reference would be what, 19... Late 1970s, is that when you got involved in the connectional structure of the denomination?
if we talk about connection beginning at the annual conference level, which I think is is where we'd really have to start, uh, I began uh, that work in the late 70s. Okay. Uh, I actually became active in the general church in 2000. Mind you, I, re I retired from my work as a geophysicist in '94. Uh, okay. And prior to that, I was I was really way too wrapped up in in the work that I was doing in geophysics uh, to be uh, active very very much beyond the local church. Although mm -hmm. I I did. Uh, serve as a lay member of the annual conference, and of course that that service in itself was eye opening for me, and uh, that's where I began to have some visibility on the possibility of being involved in the church beyond the annual conference. But I was elected to be a, a member of the delegation, the a second elected lay person to the general conference in 2000 uh, and uh, that was my first uh, service uh, in the church beyond the annual conference. Uh, I, I was I actually also elected to be a member of the General Commission on the Christian on Christian Unity and Interreligious Concerns. Uh, and if anything, that was more engaging and opened up more of an opportunity for getting into the the process of legislating uh, for the general conference than uh, serving as a delegate was, or as a, a member of the delegation. I wasn't the delegate, but first reserve delegate. Then in, uh, then in 04, 2004, I was elected to be the, the lay delegate to general conference. And that really was the... Uh, uh, the beginning of uh, intensive service in the church beyond the annual conference for me. So uh, I think the the general board you just referenced is the GCCUIC was the uh, the acronym. Yes, um, and depending <laughs> the on acronym your acronym was almost as long as the name. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my polity teacher at uh, BU School of Theology was Glenn Messer, who served on that team. Do you know that name? I do. He was on the staff uh, for a while. Uh, actually, I think he came on the staff just toward the end of my service. I served for eight years, which is the limit on uh, GCCUIC. And uh, Glenn uh, was was a member of the staff later, late in that uh, time that I served there. And, and I got to know him. I stayed uh, involved with that uh, commission even after my service ended as a consultant, uh, legislative consultant for it. For a while and Glenn was in, involved with it while I was doing that work. But I, I served as a member of the commission with Glenn's dad, Don Messer. He was a member of the commission at the same time I was. Oh, that's fun. He was a fantastic professor. He's the one who um, really got me passionate about Wesleyan uh, class meetings and how essential they are for the DNA yeah. of, of the Wesleyan movement. So that's something that I've carried with me throughout my, uh, my ministry, even though he probably wouldn't be real comfortable with how far right I've gone. Um, I, I, I still carry very uh, fond memories of him, and, and I've admired a lot of the people who do that work at the GCC UIC because I just, uh, I don't, 
I wonder what those conversations must look like. But that you know, I I didn't want this. Maybe that's a follow up conversation. I so the 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 eagle eye view you have of the denomination goes back to the early two thousands. You've got two two decades at least of really decent uh, perspective on the inner workings of the denomination, how everything is connected, who the personalities are. Of course, it's such a big picture; nobody could see it perfectly. But it it does seem like you have a particularly informed perspective. Um, there are some particulars that I know you're concerned with, but before we get into, uh, yeah, I'm, the, the next thing I was going to turn to was your op-ed that was published on February 3rd, but I just, I'm curious to know just kind of a sense to take the temperature of, of who you are. Um, there's what happened at general conference, the special called conference in 2019, and then there's what happened immediately afterwards. And um, were you in the room, um, were you at general conference 2019? I was uh, in attendance electronically. The, the, the thing was, I was scheduled to go. I, I wasn't a member of our delegation uh, in uh, 2016. I was I was not, was not a candidate. I didn't uh, thought it it was time to open it up for maybe someone younger. And ironically, the conference elected the only candidate who was older than I was uh, <laughs> serving that position. So uh, whatever. But uh, in any case. Uh, in uh, March 2019, uh, well, let me back up one step from that. As I was getting ready to leave to get to go to the airport to get on the airplane to go to St. Louis for uh, just to be there because uh -huh. I hadn't missed a general conference since 2000, um, I got really sick and I I, I was um, having some real problems and so I decided I had I just had to cancel. I couldn't get on a plane that way. And then within a, a short time, uh, my uh, uh, diagnosis came in that I had lymphoma. Oh. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, I, no, I was not at uh, General Conference 2019 because I was really sick. But watch the whole thing on uh, on the uh, streamed service that was available. Uh, so I, I felt like I was there, even though I wasn't. So I saw every minute of it. Um, that was uh, four years ago. What happened with the lymphoma? I've got to ask. Uh, I immediately went into uh, chemotherapy, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, that uh, treatment was extremely successful in my case. Uh, Fantastic. And then, so then in July, after uh, an, an intensive round of chemotherapy, I was found to be cancer free and uh, been monitored very closely with scans and different uh, blood tests regularly since then, and I'm still in remission. Uh, lymphoma is is a disease that you never fully uh, recover from. Uh -huh. uh, so I'll have it with me for the rest of my life, however long or short that turns out to be. Uh, but as as far as any technology we have available now is uh, uh, able to do so, I'm cancer free. Hey, that's great. So, well, let me bring it back to 2019 then, because uh, I would characterize 2019 as a train wreck. Um, it, uh, how about, how about this? I'll characterize it how I've typically seen it. And then you can add your corrective, uh, to sure. it. What I saw was the institution mobilizing to change the stance in particular of the sexual ethics of, of the denomination and behind the scenes. And then with what the bishops brought forward and then how the floor was governed, all of the cards being stacked in favor of not necessarily changing the position, but making room 
for the, the position on human sexuality not to be as firm as it has been. And the will of the people was very clearly against the institution. And by the end, they had made that known. But the American um, leadership in particular was unwilling to receive that. So in the, the, the days and weeks following up from that conference, they issued public statements of noncompliance with the legislation that had been passed. And um, that, that's about how I would characterize it. So does all that sound accurate to you? Or do you feel like um, perhaps it was not so egregiously mishandled? <laughs> egregiously mishandled is even perhaps an understatement. Uh, oh, okay. I, th I think your characterization is, is spot on. The only corrective I would add uh, was that uh, it was very early on in the process uh, that it became clear that uh, the carefully orchestrated, even I'd say manipulated uh, uh, outcome, uh -huh. uh, which was the adoption of the One Church Plan. That was the whole uh, leadership of the church had oriented itself to support, encourage, and facilitate the adoption of the One Church Plan. That was that was uh, clear. Uh, but uh, early on, the, the process was was adopted that would uh, prioritize the uh, the proposals that were before the conference uh -huh. uh, by a vote uh, in plenary. Uh, and with that very first vote, when of course pensions became number one, but number two of the real meat of what we'd go gone there to do, uh -huh. which was adopt one of those plans uh, when the first priority was the traditional plan. Uh, uh, the, the rest of the votes were just uh, sort of uh, a foregone conclusion, including the choice of who would be the chair of the one and only legislative committee, the committee of the whole with Joe Harris. Uh, uh, that was also a, a signal that for to anybody who was paying attention, how that was going to go uh, uh, at the end, and everything else was consistent with that, uh, right on through, including uh, the very narrow vote uh, to adopt paragraph twenty-five fifty-three uh, to uh, uh, make room for uh, 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 disaffiliations. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that was that was uh, a thing that the traditionalists uh, were ready to put in place so that the progressives uh, who didn't agree with the maintaining uh, of the uh, restrictive uh, provisions regarding LGBTQIA plus people uh, would have a way out. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not how it turned out because of the reaction, as you pointed out, in America uh, to that decision by GC 19. So uh, there, there are particulars in that that I'm interested to discuss with you, but the larger question that I'm just really itching, yeah, as I read the things that you've written, it seems to me that you appreciate the threat of ascendant progressivism and how intolerant it is of not just traditionalism, but even centrism. Whenever I saw what happened in the aftermath of 2019, I looked at these conferences and leadership saying that they would not comply with the will of the body. And I just said, 
I got to get out of here. You know, the, there, they, there is no longer any respect for the will of the body or what we put in writing. There is only the will to power of uh, the cultural elites. And that is a dangerous place for me to be. I've got to get out. I've got to help other churches get out. This is a, a toxic place. What is it? Uh, what what I'm interested in you is 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 what you do in your head where you go. No, I'm still invested. I'm still going to be involved in empowering laity and bringing about the best thing possible in this body. So how how have you thought through that since 2019? If you're clear that that the general conference was stacked and manipulated in the way that it was, and and you're not disagreeing necessarily with any of my characterizations here. What is it that has allowed you to be more gracious and trusting in this atmosphere than in someone like me? That's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a complete and uh, consistent uh, answer for that, uh, Jeffrey. But in any case, uh, I continue to be uh, persuaded <clears throat> that ultimately uh, God is in charge mm-hmm. and will prevail. And, uh, it's it's pretty messy on the road, and uh, uh, I think we can see in the biblical record the same kind of thing going on. I mean, uh, what more uh, manipulative, conniving uh, person could God have found to work with than David? I don't think you could find one, and yet. Uh, God found a way uh, to, uh, at least for almost a thousand years, uh, keep Israel in place as as God's tool for the salvation of humanity, with a leader like David mm-hmm. uh, as the as a starting point uh, in in some uh, way to think of it. Uh, and so I I I see that uh, there is that possibility. For the United Methodist Church to uh, continue to be uh, God's tool for the salvation of humanity, uh, mm. I, I, along with a whole lot of other tools. I'm not saying that the whole church uh, uh, for all time is manifested in the United Methodist Church, or uh, even uh, more importantly, as uh, the, the uh, one, imp- uh, one church that all churches should uh, gravitate to no there there are plenty of ways to be church and to be authentically church uh uh with uh, uh holy uh one catholic and apostolic uh, all the four marks historically of the church uh, you don't have to be united methodist to be a church in that sense so as i i heard all the words you said and they all make sense to me it's 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 stuck in my craw. The the thing that hurts me is uh, you know whenever you you meet somebody who shares a similar view as you, you want to be close to them, right? I mean, it's just a natural inclination to to be in the same camp as them. And so it's really it's hurt me to see so many people who share my same theological disposition. Um, I, I see that you're willingly staying in the United Methodist Church, but there are many that have wanted to disaffiliate and they can't. They they can't get their church out because of the, the conference leadership that they have, or they don't have the right the, the amount of money to pay out or anything. One of the things that I think I wonder is if a number of people have just 
um, if you've seen The Princess Bride, have you seen The Princess Bride? At least twice, maybe three times now, yeah. There's a showdown between Wesley, who's masquerading as a, a pirate. No, he actually is a pirate. He faces off against a, a smart guy and ends up poisoning him with iocane powder. He puts it in both of their drinks, and he says, I've just built up a tolerance to it so I could drink it. And that's kind of what I've wondered about some people in the United Methodist Church is if they've just gotten used to a steady stream of poison dripping into their system from the United Methodist Church such that they just aren't going to be poisoned and they're going to continue to try and leaven the loaf even if the loaf doesn't want to be leavened. Would I be right in if, if I apply that metaphor to you, do you feel like I've mis, misunderstood you? No, I think that's that's a good analogy. <laughs> I would okay. identify with that, sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, can, I well, can tolerate a high level of poison, yeah. <laughs> See, it's just it, it. Anytime I went, not when I, I I didn't go to General Conference 2019, but I did watch it as you did, and I felt sick to my bones. You know, and and even going to annual conference, it's felt to me as though um, we're worshiping different gods, liberals and conservatives. You know, it, it, that we're when we're talking about Jesus, it's not the same Jesus. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit, it's not the same Holy Spirit when we're talking about disciples, we're making very different kinds of disciples. And the fact that we would use the same words and enter this worshipful mentality, spiritual place, but mean contradictory things, ah, I, it just felt, it made me feel sick even at annual conference. I feel like I just got to get home and take a shower and keep my church isolated from these other crazy people that have taken over the denomination. So I've really, I've wondered how it is that people sit in the middle between those things and and just do their good work in the i mean as i look at your work it's just clearly concerned with the lady and fairness and crossing t's and dotting i's but this this i will bring it to the op-ed now uh, on february 3rd the united methodist news service published an op-ed you wrote called centrist progressive coalition could soon unravel in which you argue, if I summarized it, that once the traditionalists have left, the progressives are going to eat the centrist lunch. Um, that the, there's just uh, right now they've been aligned against the traditionalists, but once the tradi traditionalists are not an entity anymore, they're not going to have peace. Rather, the centrists are going to want peace, and the progressives are just going to uh, attack them. Did I did I read that broadly in a, a correct light? <laughs> 